find ourselves in 1 Corinthians. We're going through our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7, and this is our 38th message. So we're taking our time. Last week we introduced chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a very important um, chapter. It's very practical to everybody because it touches on everybody. It touches those who are single. It touches those who are married. It touches those who may have been married. It touches those who may have lost a loved one um, in death or their marriage ended in divorce. It touches on those who have not yet been married, virgins. Uh, it touches everybody. And so uh, it's a very practical chapter that we're about to embark on. And last week, we just laid down a little bit of introduction, a little bit of foundation for it. Sometimes you need that foundation, in other words, to understand the whole, the whole context of what's going on. And remember, the Corinthian church was just a hodgepodge of people from different backgrounds, different pagan backgrounds, and they ended up becoming Christians as a result of Paul's uh, preaching, and he founded the church there. And when they came into the church, they realized that their lives were a little messed up, as most of us did when we came into the church, we came into Christ. Um, Perhaps someone was teaching them that to have intimate relations with another person uh, who was your spouse was unspiritual that you shouldn't have any kind of sexual relations with anybody if you want to really be holy. Um, Some believers probably had gotten the idea that it's better to stay single and celibate because Paul speaks to that, and that's more spiritual than being married. Um, And the situation was difficult. It was uh, confusing at times, you might say, even for the more mature Christians because they lived in such a convoluted society. And the great question these believers were asking Paul was, okay, well, now that we're Christians, what do we do as believers concerning our marital background or our marital relationships or the state in which we find ourselves now? Um, Should we stay together as husband and wife if we're both Christians now that we're married? Um, Should we get divorced if our spouse is an unbeliever? Are we unequally yoked? Uh, Should I remain single? Um, Should I go back to the person I divorced? All these questions were running through their minds. And it really brings up a myriad of endless possibilities. And so Paul approaches this section. And uh, last week we talked about laying a foundation of what the Lord taught on marriage. And just to review real quickly, we said that first of all, he said that marriage is designed by God. It wasn't something that was an afterthought. It wasn't something that God created the animals and then he created Adam and then he tried all the animals and said, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> oh, wow, I guess I'll create woman. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let me try that. No, this was performed and it was perfected. It was purposed in all eternity past. God didn't create Adam and then sit there scratching his head thinking, well, how's he going to reproduce? Marriage is designed by God. Secondly, we said that Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 that marriage is to be monogamous. One man, one woman for life, period. You can redefine that all day long according to the culture. It makes no difference. God has spoken on this already. And for thousands and thousands of years, that's the way it was up until several years ago when our Supreme Court decided to weigh in and say, oh, no, you can... can." 
have a marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. That's okay. I mean, what they do in their relationships is between them and God as far as I'm concerned. But when you call it marriage, you're redefining a term that God has already defined. And so we have to be careful with that. And then Jesus also said in Matthew 5 that marriage is to be unbroken. It's not an option. Um, today we live in a society where people get married and if it doesn't work out, a couple months, a couple years, out, they just depart, get divorced, and go marry somebody else. They think it's like a vending machine or something. That's not how God designed marriage to be. God designed marriage to be one man, one woman for life. And that's the gravity, really, of the commitment that you're making when you walk down an aisle in front of people and before God and say, I do. You don't have the privilege of saying, well, I thought about it, now I don't, <laughs> after you already said I do. God doesn't give us that privilege. Now, there are occasions where marriages end. There are occasions when they end badly. There are occasions when they end according to scriptural principles. That's just a reality of life. But that doesn't change the commitment that marriage should be entered into. That's why I always tell people, before they get married, definitely, definitely, definitely get some counseling. Get some biblical premarital counseling. I don't care if you've been married 100 times. You still, obviously, <laughs> need the counseling, right? Yeah, we got to write the first 99 times. How do you think you're, you know, and, and people go into this with very little thinking a lot of times. It's all emotional, they meet somebody, and they're emotional about that person, and they're just, you know, well, I'm in love. I feel this. I feel that. I feel they're the one. That's fine. Just get some counsel. Even if it's six weeks of somebody that has some biblical knowledge that can kind of point you in the right direction, it will save you years of heartache. I guarantee it. Not that you won't have any heartache. You will, because marriage contains heartache, but it won't be as bad because you'll have the biblical resources and the counsel to deal with it when the situations arise. And so when Paul entered into this text, he was also considering what Jesus had already taught. Because previously, um, Jesus had taught certain things about marriage that we just covered. And then when we read certain verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul says, well, the Lord doesn't say this, but I do. And we talk about how sometimes commentators get a little confused over that, and they think, well, that's just Paul sharing his opinion. It's not inspired. Well, it's in the Scripture. It's definitely inspired. We don't value one word over another in the Bible, whether they're read or not in your Bibles. They're all God-breathed. They're all inerrant. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they're all God's truth. And so Jesus' words has no more weight than Paul's, word, Paul's words when it comes to the divinity and the inspiration and the source of Scripture. It's all from God. And so Paul, we, we talked about this a couple occasions. He says, well, I don't say this, but, but the Lord. In verse 10, he says, to the marriage, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he does both. On occasions, he'll say, the Lord doesn't talk about this, so I'm going to give you something new. Not, not the Lord, but me. And then on other occasions, he says, well, the Lord has referenced this. Not I, but the Lord. See, Paul's not saying, well, Jesus' words have more weight. He's actually making the argument that his word 
is on a par with the word of Christ because it's all inspired scripture. And that's what he's doing as he walks through this together. Um, And so he references the teachings of the Lord. But we talked a little bit about the morality in Corinth and all the, the different situations that were going on. Promiscuity. You had concubines, you had all these things, and divorce was just rampant. And so when people came to Christ and they heard Paul talk about the, the uh, kind of the divine nature of marriage, that it's something to be valued, um, for a lot of them, this was brand new. And so he had to kind of uh, be very forthright as he began to address their questions. And so he teaches... Uh, first of all, he says, you know, that it, celibacy is good, singleness is good. He says in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. In other words, they wrote them. It was such a heavy thing on their heart. They said, we have some questions, Paul. You need to answer these. These are things that are troubling our church. And this is the way we're kind of approach this a little bit is by uh, addressing the questions that Paul asked. And the first one is, They said, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Is it good? What's he mean by that? Uh, He means, is it healthy? Is it okay? Is it spiritually advisable? Uh, What are the normal physical relationships between a man and a woman? Um. Are they, is it unspiritual to have relations with your spouse after you become a Christian? That's what these people were asking. Um, They wanted to know the answer to these because it was heavy on their heart. And because they had all this chaos going around them in the city of Corinth, their marriages were troubled at best. And then they come to Christ and they're trying to figure all this out. And so that's the first, really, the first question that they ask. Is it unspiritual to have physical relations with your spouse? And, and that's what he, he addresses here. Um, is it good? Is it okay? Is it good not to have this? Um, is it not evil? That's what they're asking. Uh, and his answer is, is very telling. Um, it is okay. It is, is it good for a, a, a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? In verse 2, he says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Notice wife, singular, not wives. And each woman her own husband. And so he points out, really, why we have Marriage. Uh, throughout the scriptures, we're given a lot of different reasons why we have marriage. And uh, if you just follow along there in the outline, you'll see some of them. The first one is for procreation. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Sometimes it's good to not just assume that everybody understands why we have marriage. And so we want to look at some of these verses this morning that points out to us God's reasons for marriage, not ours, but God's. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, 
It says in God, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and what? Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and all the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is one of the reasons God designed marriage, to populate the earth. Now, there are occasions when couples can't have children. That's in the mix, obviously. But one of the main reasons for marriage is just that, procreation of children. And I just want to say, you know, sometimes God blesses parents with, you know, 8, 12 kids. I grew up in a family of nine, six brothers, two sisters, and myself. And it was an adventure, you know. And I remember early on, like probably in, before I was even a teenager, oh, when I, get, I want to have a huge family because that's all I knew. And you know what? God didn't have that in my plan, in my purpose. And now I look back and, you know what, I'm okay with it. <laughs> really, I am. <laughs> I look at some of the things that your parents go through, uh, you as parents go through, and I just scratch my head thinking, how do you balance? I mean, just to have one child is one thing. But to have multiple children and to have multiple activities to take these children to and to have multiple mouths to feed and multiple colleges and all that to think about, that just blows my mind. And yet, that's why God originally designed marriage. And see, it's very good to understand that, you know what, if God has blessed you with children, then that's his purpose, that's his plan. Do the best you can at parenting those children. But, you know, maybe you're a couple here who hasn't been blessed with children. And you're scratching your head and shaking your fist at God and say, why? You know what? You have to be just as okay with the fact that for whatever purpose right now, God doesn't have that in his plan. He doesn't have that in his purpose. And God knows everything about you. He knows everything about your spouse. He knows everything about your marriage. He knows everything about your life. So God isn't caught off guard by those things. And the Bible speaks about, you know, the the state in which you find yourself. Be satisfied in that. And even as young people, single people, you know what? Be satisfied that right now, for whatever reason, God has you as a single individual. You don't need to go on the internet and look up websites and try to date that way or whatever. You know what? You get on your knees before God and you ask God if you want a a spouse, you ask God for that spouse. And in his time and in his way, he will bring that to pass. And see, and that's where You have to be content in the situation you find yourself in. Because I've known a lot of single people who just fretted, fretted, fretted about getting married, and then they get married, and you know what? It's a disaster. And they scratched their head, and they, what was I thinking? Because they hurried the process. I mean, I get it. Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes, you know, you want a partner. I mean, the Bible speaks of all that. Concerning marriage, that's some of the things that it it provides. But on the other hand, you know what? God has you single right now for a purpose. 
Or maybe he has you as a couple without children for a purpose. Don't miss the purpose of God in this time. So procreation. Secondly, Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the marriage bed being undefiled. Hebrews chapter 13. And one of the other purposes or reasons, you might say, for marriage. He says, let marriage be held in honor, verse 4, among all. We live in a society today where marriage isn't held in honor. It's almost disdained. But it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Um, one thing that, that marriage offers is intimate relations with your spouse. That's just one of the reasons that God provided marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to be ashamed of there. God desires us to have pleasure experienced within the confines of marriage. It's when you break outside the confines of marriage, that's where you get into trouble. But within the confines of marriage, one of the reasons is God provides marriage for procreation and for pleasure. And then right here in our chapter today, we talk about purity. We'll talk about that. Why does God provide marriage? Well, for purity. He also talks, it, talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 8, about it being for provision. About it being for provision. God allows us to be married so that we can have the uh, responsibility to provide for somebody. In, in, first, in first Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's he saying? He's saying, basically, this is something that is provided for in Scripture. When you get married, as a man, you're expected to be the provider. You're expected to be the head of the household. That's just given. And when that doesn't happen, when the roles get reversed, you usually end up with confusion and issues. Now, I'm not one of these people that say, oh, the, the woman has to be barefoot and pregnant and in front of the stove 24-7 and she can't ever work a job. Or, no, I'm, not, I'm not that way at all. We, we live in a culture today where you know, um, women are a great part of the workforce, and I don't have a problem with that. Where I would have a problem with it is if it takes away from her duties as a mother of her children. You know, if, if she has a newborn baby and she's not giving that newborn baby the time of the day, the time needed to nurture that young child because that's her God-given role. But, you know, and this is touchy, but if she farms that out to some, you know, neighborhood nursery school or something or preschool, um, that's not God's design. You know, you just have to be content that, hey, you know what? I got a newborn right now. I got to take a break from my work and I got to raise my child. Doesn't mean you can never work again. Doesn't mean you're less of a woman. Doesn't mean that any of those things. As a matter of fact, it's a lot harder probably to stay home and deal with your children the way God desires you to rather than just go out and farm them out to somebody else. So there's that aspect of provision. And then in Ephesians, 
chapter 5, verse 33, it talks about the aspect of partnership within marriage. You know, uh, some people are very much um, on their own. They do their own, uh, they're kind of onto themselves. Uh, I have a tendency to have that kind of a personality. I am very much a very independent person. I hate to ask people for help. I mean, I'll drive, you know, 30 minutes before I'll stop and ask anybody for directions. I don't care how lost I am. I'm going to figure this thing out. Now, you say, that's stupid. Yeah, it is. But I recognize I have that uh, tendency. So God knew already that I'd be that way, so he provided someone to come alongside of me, a partner to point out to me, just stop and ask directions. <laughs> It'll be so much easier. All right, I'll stop, but you're going to ask. I'm not asking, you know. So usually that's how it works. But it says in verse 33 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, we, we did a, a series several years ago on for married couples called Love and Respect. It was a video series. If you ever want to see it, I think we still have the videos. It's a, it's a great little series. You know, it's got some psychobabble in it, but for the most part, it's good. It really is based on that verse. And he talks about, Egrich talks about the idea that, you know what? The Bible says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Men are commanded, commanded to love their wives. The wives aren't commanded to love. They just do that naturally. But what are the wives commanded to do? They're commanded to respect their husbands, which doesn't come so naturally a lot of the times, usually because we don't deserve it. But it's irrespective. That's what the command is. That's the whole point. And so what, what one of the reasons for marriage, procreation, pleasure, purity, provision, partnership, um, it's the idea that it's not good to be a not good to be alone in this world. And if God has gifted you with the ability to be alone, I mean, I didn't get married, I think I was 33 when I got married. So I was pretty much set in my ways. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, I remember first couple weeks of marriage, walking into the kitchen cupboard and opening up the cupboard and seeing the glasses facing up. I thought, who in the world would ever do that? You always put the lid down on the glass because you don't want dirt to get in it, so you put them down. And my wife, why would you do that? Then the part you're touching your lips is on the counter. You want it to be up. And I, I never thought of that. But no, no, we're going to do it this way. You know, boy, it started, right? I mean, that's what partnership is about, though. You know, it's about coming together, two imperfect people, and then coming together and called to love each other uh, the way Christ loves the church. Yeah, good luck with that. But that's what we're commanded to do, okay? And that's what we're desirous to do. So it's that partnership. And, you know, as independent as I was today, I mean, probably not a day goes by that I don't thank God for the partnership that I have with my wife. I mean, just this morning, I'm you know, went back to home to pick her up, and I was, got home, and I walked up to her, and I held out my sleeve, and she's like, oh, you need your sleeve buttoned. 
And I'm like, what's happening to me? You know, but I got arthritis in my thumbs. And so just that simple little thing, I could not get that button. I mean, I tried, trust me. I was in a lot of pain this morning trying. I even tried on the way home, steering with my knee, you know, trying to do the two hands. And I thought, I, I, got, I need my partner. And I didn't feel bad because it took her all about 30, 45 seconds to get this thing buttoned. So it was a little difficult. But my point is, is that that's why God brings us together. And that's something that we should praise the Lord for. And then the last thing here, one of the reasons for marriage is a picture. And that's also in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 verse 25 is a picture of the Christ, of, of the church. It says, husbands, love your wives what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the last reason we're going to look at today for marriage, is a picture of Christ in the church. Talk about convicting. You know, I mean, just ask yourself, men, is your relationship with your wife, your marriage, a picture of how Christ loves the church? Wow. Talk about convicting. You know, it's, and that's really what it should be. It should be that to, to everyone who views your marriage. Now, obviously, we're not going to have perfect marriages on this side of glory, and we're not going to have marriages on that side of glory. <laughs> so we're never going to have a perfect marriage, right? So just think about it that way. It's something that God has given us to enjoy and to be partnership and, and to have the provision and all those things here on this earth. And just make the most of it. You know, you never know um, what life holds. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And, you know, it's, I, I, I saw it happen to my own sister when she lost her husband last March. I mean, they were together for almost 50 years, 40-some years. And after my brother-in-law died, I mean, it, it's almost... I mean, it's almost like she just gave up. Like she didn't want to live anymore. Like, what's the use? I don't have anybody to live my life with. And she was a very independent woman. Okay, but that partnership was taken away. And see, she didn't know that was going to happen. He didn't know that was going to happen. It just happened. And so that's why I say make the most of your marriage. Try to focus on things that matter. Don't... You know, there's a lot of things that irritate us in marriage. You know, does the toilet paper go over? Does the toilet paper go under? You know, I've had this conversation with Ken. It goes over, right? He's a cleaning business, so there you go. You know, um, people that have cats know you got to put it, I don't know, whatever. I, I don't have a cat, so I don't care. But, you know, it just makes sense. And, and you can argue about simple, stupid little things like that. And, and sometimes it's, we just got to step back and laugh because it's like, wow, are we really even talking about this? Who cares? Who cares? And so right here in the middle of, of, this, of this book, basically chapter 7 here, he talks about the idea of uh, singleness. And so he says there in verse 1, basically, that it's okay to be single. It's good. It's not a, it's not a, a bad thing. Um, there were people that were saying, well, should we stay single? Should I stay celibate? Um, should I view any kind of personal relationships with another individual as something that is um, not, not right? 
And so he talks very clearly about what we call celibacy or, or singleness. And he wants us to understand what the purpose is here and what the, uh, what the, the process is. So he says, concerning the matters about what you wrote, is it, is it, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So he's sexual relations to touch. Uh, some, some verses say it, it, it implies sexual intercourse there. That's what it's talking about. And the phrase is used in over over in other parts of the Scripture, in the Old Testament and New Testament. He doesn't say that singleness is the only good condition, though. They just asked him, is, is it okay to be single? And he said, yeah, it's okay for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so it's good. That's the first thing he points out. But he also says, you know what? You're kind of walking into a minefield because it's, it's going to be tempting. And that's what he says in verse 2 here. He says, but, in other words, it's good to stay single, but let me tell you something. Because of temptation to sexual immorality. Now remember, he's talking to who? He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to people that know Christ. And so he says, because of, sexual, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, he's not implying that they were immoral people. He's not saying that, even though a lot of them came out of that kind of a background. He's speaking here of a a danger of falling into sexual immorality as a single person, as somebody who is celibate, someone who does not have a partner. Why? Because God created us with sexual desires, with intimate desires. And the only way that he has prescribed for those desires to be dealt with is in the confines of marriage. One husband, one wife for life. And so because that sexual desire can be unfulfilled if you're not married, matter of fact, it can be very strong, there's a what? There's a temptation. And you see it all the time to fall into sexual immorality. What is that? That is having sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. That's what he's referring to. In the ancient Roman time, it happened all over the place. It was the norm, you might say. I mean, even within marriages, they had prostitutes. They had concubines. And so there was a a great fulfillment of those desires in that culture, just like there's a great fulfillment of those desires in our own culture outside of marriage. That doesn't make it right. It makes it wrong. And so he says, I'm going to provide for you an avenue where your sexual desires can be practiced and glorified, and, 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 and it's honoring to the Lord. The marriage bed is undefiled. But what I see, especially within Christian people, among Christian people, Christian families, is they kind of reduce marriage to 
one simple thing. It's, it's basically God's way of, it's an escape valve for your sex drive. Let me say it that way. And they enter into marriage thinking that. And they realize, usually pretty quick, wow, that, that doesn't work. Um, see, marriage does not suggest that Christians go out and find another Christian to marry just so they don't get stuck in immoral sin. Um, that, that's a very low view of marriage. That makes marriage all about sexual relations. In Ephesians, once again, chapter 5, he points out in verses 22 and 23, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so he has a very high view of marriage. His purpose is to stress the reality of temptation. It's all around us. And especially if you're a single person, it's all around you. And to acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet for those desires in, within marriage. That's why he says, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. And that's very important for us to point out. And so celibacy is, um, it's good, it's okay, but it can also be um, tempting. So you have to make sure that you have built-in firewalls in your life if you're a single person. You know, I remember I was a youth pastor for years, and I remember one of the things that, you know, I would always try to practice, if I could, is try not to be in the same company of another single person, another single female by myself. And, you know, that, that's just a very important principle. Okay, it doesn't matter who the person is, whatever, it's just, it's just an important principle to practice. Well, it's good, it's tempting. Well, look at what he says here in verses 3 to 5. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So this is speaking to the aspect of celibacy is wrong for somebody who's married. Okay, you don't have the right as a married individual to say, well, now I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to have any relations with anyone, including my spouse. That's, that, that, that grows... That's totally opposite of the purpose and the reasons for marriage. He says in verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And you say, well, why are they bringing that up? Because remember, they had a kind of a a woman's lib, uh, you know, uh, movement back then even. I mean, you had some women that, that wore helmets and carried swords and, you know, were all against any kind of marital uh, relations at all. And so Paul's bringing this up because that's their background. That's what they came out of. And so they're really asking is, you know, okay, after we become Christians, is it okay to have these kind of relations? And Paul says, well, you don't want to be celibate if you're married. That's, that's not a a right thing. And in verse 5, he says there, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So it's, it's important sometimes 
in the relationship of a husband and wife that there, there not be intimate relations. But it says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. And look, at it says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. <laughs> That's the one reason that you get to deprive one another of intimate relations in your marriage. Husbands and wives have a duty to give sexual gratification to the other spouse. That's what Scripture says. There's no distinction between men and women here. The the husband doesn't have more rights than the wife or vice versa. Paul really, verse 4, he reinforces this as a mutual obligation. This is something that we're called to do within the confines of marriage. In fact, failure for Christian husbands and wives to submit sexually to the authority of their spouses brings dishonor to God. It dishonors their marriage. That word there where he says they have authority over, it indicates a a general statement that's always true. Spouses mutually have authority over each other's bodies continuously throughout the marriage. All right? It's the normal terms, the normal realms of life. A Christian's body is his own to take care of and to use it as a gift of God. And then you get married and you have a responsibility there toward your partner. Sexual expression within marriage is not an option. It's not something that, you know, is extra credit. You don't get to earn it. Okay, that's not how it works. Um, That's how it's considered sometimes. But that's unfortunate. Sometimes intimate relations within a marriage are used as a weapon against the other person. And it's, it's far more than just a physical act. God created it to be an expression, the experience of love on the deepest human level. And it should be beautiful. It should be really that powerful bond between a husband and a wife. God intends marriage to be permanent and the sexual relations within that marriage to be permanent. Um, His original plan for marriage did not allow for divorce or for celibacy. Now, that happens, but that's not his plan originally. Christians are not to forsake unbelieving spouses. Um, They're not to sexually deprive their spouses, whether they're believing or unbelieving. And that's why he gives that inclusive prohibition there, stop depriving one another. So some of them were already doing this. And maybe they got saved out of a weird background or whatever, and they thought, okay, and maybe they tried to set up. I don't know what, the, it doesn't give us the particulars, but it's strong enough here to realize that this was going on on a regular basis. So just know that sexual relations between a husband and a wife are God-ordained, and they are commanded. And the only exception, the only exception that we find in Scripture, it says, by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. I had one person one time say, we pray a lot in my household. (laughs) See, and that's kind of the, what he's talking about here is a case of, of, of fasting if both partners agree to abstain from sexual activity. For a brief period of time to allow 
them to spend time in prayer. They're allowed to do so. Um, it's a period of time, and it's, it's designated as such, and it's based upon the time that they're spending in prayer. And so, you know, God may give us within our marriages, both of us, a, a certain indication, boy, we really need to be praying about this and praying about that. Maybe it's somebody who's ill, or maybe it's some kind of guidance that you may need or whatever. But he says, don't. Don't think that that's, it stops there. You have to come back together. And that's what he says here. He says, but then come together again. Restore the sexual relations so that, look, Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I mean, this is kind of nitty-gritty stuff, right? I mean, I don't even necessarily feel comfortable talking about this, but that's what it says. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's true. It's true. Uh, in the Old Testament, a lot of times it, it gave an indication that, that sexual relations between a man and a wife could be forsaken for a period of time for maybe if there was a death in the family or something like that. So it did allow for that. But it also said that husbands and wives are to come together again. And the reason is very clear. Satan is going to tempt you. He's going to put things in your path that will cause you to stumble. All right? And we live in a day and age. I mean, this was the case back in Paul's day. Okay? They didn't have the internet. They didn't have little phones. They didn't have little screens. You know, I heard a, uh, a pastor one time several years ago when the rage was all the big TVs, you know, they had these huge TVs and even video projector TVs, you know, people put them in their basement and everything, and they were getting bigger and bigger. And he goes, my fear is not the big TVs. My fear is how small these screens are going to become because you can do a lot of things with your phones today, a lot of things that are not honoring to God, and no one, no one, We'll ever know. Except the government, but think about that one. <laughs> but see, there's that temptation out there. And, you know, sometimes physical love is to be the normal and regular experience shared by both marriage partners. It's a gift from God. And you want to guard against that temptation. And so that's just a very, very real um, concern that Paul had. Celibacy, if you, can, if you can stay single, then go for it, as long as you don't find yourself being tempted and being led into immorality. Maybe God has gifted you with singleness. And by the way, sometimes God gifts us with singleness, and I, I feel I had that gift for years before I got married. But then there comes a time when he says, now I'm going to take the gift away, and you're going to get married. Okay? Or there's times when people are married, and then their spouse dies, or they go through a divorce. And you know what? God, in his divine being, gives them the gift of singleness. And they don't have a desire to get married again. Because they don't deal with a lot of these kind of relational temptation issues. And so... It's a gift. That's the last point here. Celibacy is a gift. And that's what he says in verses 6 to 7. He says, 
Now, as a concession, not a command, okay, he's not commanding this. He's just saying, I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, at this point, we know that Paul was single. He had been married. We don't know what happened to his wife. She probably most likely passed away, died. But he's saying, you know what? There's, there's a lot of goodness about being single, about being celibate. And I can speak to that, Paul's saying, because that's the situation I find myself in right now. And I'm sure that in the heart of Paul, he was saying, wow, I don't have to worry about providing for my spouse. I don't have to worry about you know, my relationship with my spouse. If I want to go over to this part and, and preach to these people, I just go. You know, there's a lot of positive things about being single and serving the Lord. Wonderful things about being married and serving the Lord. And just because it happens at a certain point in time in your life, whether it's after you've been married or before you've been married, celibacy clearly is a gift. Because that's what he continues here. He says, I wish that all were like I myself am, but... Each, what, has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And what Paul is saying is, look, it's not a spiritual thing that you're celibate, that you're single. That doesn't make you more spiritual than the married person. That's probably the exception and not the rule as far as being celibate. Because God understands that, you know what, we live in, in, in a society where constantly, We are bombarded with sexual immorality everywhere we look. I mean, whether it's on TV, whether it's driving down the freeway, a billboard, whether it's, you know, I mean, I told you last week, I saw a sermon online. And and even the little little context of the the logo for the sermon, the sermon was called uh, Victorious Eyes or Victorious Secrets. That's what it was. I think last week I said eyes, but I actually went back and looked at it this week because I was showing my wife, and it said Victorious Secrets. Not Vic, Victorious, but Victorious, okay? But still, it had the eyes of the model and everything. I thought, wow, that is so seductive. I wonder how many men in that guy's sermon on a Sunday morning were thinking other things rather than what he was talking about. See, we have to be so careful. We have to be so careful, and especially within within our marriages, you know, that, that as a husband and a wife, we're not allowing the enemy to come in there and create points of division so that these sexual relations aren't happening on a regular basis. Because if that's the case, you're opening up Pandora's box of temptation and sexual immorality, even though you're married. Um, so, is it... Normal to have physical relations between a man and a woman? Yes. Are they, is that unspiritual? Not at all. But on the other hand, if you're single, that's okay too. There's nothing unspiritual about that either. And then he asks another question. He says, should the formerly married remain uh, or uh, re- remarry? In other words, maybe... You were formerly married, and there's two categories there of people who were formerly married. In our text, there's the unmarried. All right, he says there in verse 8, to the unmarried, and who else? Who else is unmarried? The widows. 
Okay, those who are formerly married are either widowed or they're what Paul calls the unmarried. And you say, well, who's the unmarried? Is that a single person? No, it's not, because down further, Paul addresses single people as, as virgins, people who hadn't had uh, sexual relationships with anybody, somebody who has never been married. So those are the single people. Here he's talking, I believe, about divorced people, unmarried people. You have people who are formerly married. You have the unmarried, those who had gone through a divorce, and those who were widowed, the spouse passed away. And see, that's kind of an important point because I'm sure that they had questions about that in their own lives. And so he says in verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Single Christians. He talks about about single Christians, about Christians being single. But in verse 9, Look at, once again, same, same issue. But if they can't exercise self-control, what's he say? They should marry. You know, there's nothing spiritual if you were at one point married and now you're not. There's nothing spiritual about being single the rest of your life, unmarried the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, if you're tempted in the immoral areas, you should find yourself a spouse. That's what he's saying. He said it's good to remain single. You can get a lot more done if you're single. You have a lot less resources to worry about all that stuff. You can live in your car if you had to and serve the Lord that way. But if you can't exercise self-control, Paul says, you better get married. You better get married. That always cracks me up because a lot of times we have this conversation, honey, if I died, would you get remarried? No, I wouldn't get remarried. Oh, I think you would. I think you would. It's like, no, I wouldn't. I don't think I would. And then I say, you know what? I don't know. It's in God's hand. Oh, I can't believe you're saying It's like, what? Can't win. You can't win, right? I mean, come on. But you know what? That's not our call. I mean, I may be your husband now. But guess what? If you die, I ain't your husband anymore. (laughs) I mean, that's what the Scripture says. And you know what? If God wants me to be married, then I will be married because I want to do what God wants to do. That's that's what's in my heart, and that's what anybody should desire to do. But practically, I say, yeah, probably not. I mean, it's been fun. It's been great. But, you know... I mean, I can see myself serving the Lord just by myself. But then again, you don't know. I mean, you just don't know, right? I know, I know. I am. I'm treading very lightly here, but I'm just being honest and being transparent. (laughs) But he says, if you can't exercise self-control, you better marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay. Um, it would be silly if someone who was formerly married and is now single is not married, if they're burning with passion, that they would think that somehow God gave them the gift of celibacy or singleness. No, he didn't. 
you know, that wouldn't even be on your radar if you had that gift because God's not going to tempt you in that way. And then look at verses 10 to 11. He says, so he talks about the single Christians in verse 8 and 9, and we'll wrap this up. Verses 10 to 11, he says, Christians married to other Christians. This is kind of practical. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And once again, he puts that little qualifier in there, but it's all God's word. Remember that. The wife should not separate from her husband. So you say, well, why would he be saying that? Um, Well, in this case, this is a brother who has a wife, and maybe she's the unbeliever. Maybe he came to Christ, and she didn't. So the wife should not separate from her husband. Okay, it goes, both, it goes both ways. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. All right, the unbelieving husband, he gives the reason why. Um, and he reverses it there in verse 12. He says, to the rest... I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the, the thing is this, is in Corinth, you had people from different backgrounds say, say, say the wife gets married or the wife gets saved. Well, she comes to Pastor Paul and she says, well, should I leave my husband? He's not a believer. Because from what you're telling me, I'm unequally yoked. <laughs> And Paul says, no, you remain as you are. And he tells us why here in a second. And he says the same thing about the other. Maybe, maybe the husband comes to Christ and the wife doesn't. Well, can I get rid of her? <laughs> no. <laughs> marriage is still marriage. Um, you can't divorce your spouse for that purpose just because they're an unbeliever. That's not a reason that God allows. And so he says in verse Uh, 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy, look at this, because of her husband. Now, this is not speaking of salvation. They're not saying, well, if you have an unbelieving husband and you go to church and you're a Christian, well, he's saved. No, he's not saying that. What are they talking about? What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about, basically, you're under the umbrella of God's blessing upon that believer. If the wife is a believer and the husband isn't, well, guess what? God's probably going to bless that home if she's faithful to the Lord. And guess who gets the benefits of that? Those who are under the household, even the unbelieving husband. Not as far as salvation goes. You don't get to heaven on anybody's coattails. But on the other hand, it helps you understand that, you know what? God can take a believing wife and use her as a sanctifying instrument in the life of an unbelieving husband. And eventually, maybe God would call that husband to know Christ, and they will be saved. That's why I'm always very careful when people come to me and say, well, you know, I have a wife and she's not a Christian, or I have a husband and he's not a Christian, should I get a divorce? Marriage is on the rocks. I said, well... I would tell you to do the one thing where God would get the most glory. Well, what's that mean? 
Well, how would God get the most glory in your situation? Say you're a a wife who's a Christian and your husband's not. What would give God the most glory? Well, that my husband became a Christian, right? And even though it's hard at times and they're not on the same page and, and, and vice versa, maybe the husband's a Christian and the wife's not. What would give God the most glory? Hang in there, if you can. Hang in there. Because you don't know when God's going to work. You don't know when God is going to call that person to salvation. What a horrible thing it would be to divorce that person just because they're an unbeliever, and then five years later you run into them and they were a Christian. <laughs> wow. Wait a minute. Maybe I got the cart in front of the horse. So you have to understand that just having an unbelieving spouse is not the reason to leave the marriage. That's not a, a, a reason. But it says here, and we'll just read this and then we'll, we'll comment it further on next week. Verse 14, the husband is made holy because of the wife and the unbelieving wife is made husband, holy because of her believing husband is the implication. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They're, they're covered under that blessing of one of them being a believer is what it's saying. It's, it, we know it as God's common grace, Right? If God, God blesses you, then you know what? There's other people that are under that umbrella, and they'll receive the blessing as well, even though they may not be part of God's family. But look at what it says in verse 15. But if an unbelieving partner separates, so you have a believing partner and an unbelieving partner, and the unbeliever says, you know what? I'm done. You're a religious fanatic. I'm over this. I'm filing for divorce. What does Paul say? Let it be so. <laughs> Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, whichever side it's on, is not enslaved. Um, That's kind of a bad term to think of marriage, but that's really what it's saying. So you're freed from that commitment. And God has called you to peace. So you had people in the Corinthian church where maybe the, the woman came to Christ, and she's saying, you know what, my unbelieving husband is horrible, I'm not... You know, I'm not going to have any relationships with it. I'm not going to do anything, you know. I am a Christian now. And Paul's saying, no. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. You, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to deny him any sexual gratification. You don't have the, the right to, to not be part of that marriage just because he's an unbeliever. As a matter of fact, they may be one to Christ because of you. So you have to hang in there. But... If he gets fed up with your Christianity to the point where he says, you know what, I'm divorcing you, I'm out of here. Paul says, as a Christian, don't fight it. That's what he says. Let it be so. See, so many times we get it wrong on both sides, don't we? I've talked to Christians who were married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is trying to divorce him. I don't believe in divorce. And what are they doing? They're not causing peace. They're fighting. They're fighting what might be God's will for that person. And so Paul says very clearly, look, if they're going to walk, let them walk. Let them walk. So if the unbeliever divorces a believer, let them leave. They're not under bondage in such cases. And the other exception with divorce, or for divorce, is uh, found in Matthew 19, Matthew 5, and that being uh, adultery. So you have reasons for a divorce, biblical reasons for a divorce would be one of adultery, where you have a spouse that's being unfaithful to you. And then secondly, 
if the unbeliever divorces a believer. You're not under bondage. The bond is broken. Um, and so that's, that's Paul's principles concerning the marriage guidelines for single people, for Christians who married other Christians, for Christians who were married to unbelievers who want to stay married, and Christians married to unbelievers who want to leave. All right, next week we'll continue uh, down through uh, verse 40, 17 to 40, and we'll talk about some other questions that they had concerning marriage. I hope that wasn't confusing to you. I hope it was enlightening. If, it, if you have any questions, come and talk to me afterwards. Not you, dear, but anybody else. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for his heart to help these new believers um, kind of find their way through uh, the covenant of marriage. And, Lord, they had a a mixed bag of things going on there. And we just pray that, Lord, maybe we have a mixed bag of things going on in our background and our upbringing and even in our marriage now, Lord. And we just pray that as husbands and wives that we would commit our marriages to you, that we would submit, first of all, to you concerning your purpose and desires for our marriage, and then also mutually submit to one another within the confines of marriage. And, Father, that you would guard our lives against any temptation from Satan as far as immorality is concerned, that we would um, definitely fulfill our marital obligations one to another. And Father, we pray for the single people here today, whether they're single, unmarried, or, or never been married, Lord, we pray that you would continue to guard their hearts as they live in this world, that you would, if it's your will, provide the spouse for them at the right time. And Lord, we think of people who have children, that you would give them the ability to parent those children in a way that's honoring to you. And for those who may not have children, desire children, I pray that their trust would be solely in you. And, and Lord, that you would um, give them uh, contentment in, in that space in which they find themselves. And Lord, we, we know that that is ultimately your call, not ours. And Lord, help us make the most of our lives now. We thank you and we pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship over across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand.